well and good to be with you. Yeah, likewise. And where are you? Are you in uh, the Bay Area? Right. I'm, I live in uh, Oakland, California, oh, okay, San cool. Francisco Bay Area. You've been there for a long time. Yes. For, uh, well, I've been in California since uh, early, early 70s, about 1970. And I, uh, I was in Santa Cruz for a lot of years, nice. but I've been in Oakland for maybe 25 years, something cool. like that. Well, the, the long story short, of course, I've known who you are because of our relationship with Mindful Schools, but I have a student, uh, a student I work with my mentoring program who, who showed me this book. He said, I got this new book today called Samadhi by Richard Shankman. He goes, you ever heard of this guy? I said, yeah, I've heard of him. I don't know a lot about him. And of course, I got the book and I, I love the book. Uh, I think it's a great book. I, I really love a lot of the way the book is organized, a lot of the ideas. So I want to kind of drill down on that today. But I guess my first sure. question would be, um, first of all, I applaud your willingness to write a book on Samadhi. Uh, what was the inspiration <laughs> behind that? What, what, what motivated you? What inspired you right. to really write a book on this one singular Buddhist term? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that, that's a good question. When, um, back when I wrote that, um, you know, things have changed over the years, but um, it used to be, at least in the scene that I'm in, the Theravada scene out of places like Spirit Rock and IMS, yeah. um, you know, it came out of, the, of course, those teachers who first started, you know, they, they studied and practiced with many, many different teachers. But for whatever reason, they were offering a style of practice that came through more like the Mahasi Sayadaw out of the, a particular Burmese style. Sure. And it had this idea of what we call insight meditation. It's a, I don't know if you want to get into all that, but sure, let's get into and, it. and they used to make a separation between what they call concentration or samadhi, which are all different. I'm sure we'll talk about all this, but, and so there was this whole feeling there that you have to do this thing called insight uh, if you want to get this liberation or this enlightenment that they're talking about. Right. It turns out that's not true, but uh, that was the, it's a fine system. I'm not denigrating it sure. in any way, but it's it's a system among many that work well. And, but the thing is, and then if you, to, in order to get the insight, you can't be doing this other thing called concentration because it, anyway, for all these different reasons we could discuss. And there was a lot of confusion out there of, of what's concentration. This makes a big deal in the, in the, in the ancient Pali texts, but why, why is it not insight? How do they work together? And I couldn't believe that no one, I think it was just a gaping hole that to clarify this confusion. So I thought, well, this is what I did in the, in the book. I thought, well, why don't I go back and just go through the old ancient source texts sure. and see what do they really say? Yeah. And so, and then try to lay that out. And then, you know, in the second half of the book, I did these interviews with these totally. eight well-known teachers to see what they said. I just felt like it was a need. It, it, um, you know, writing a book is hard. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I applaud your efforts, especially with that book. So let's just drill down on a little bit. I got a bunch of questions, but they're not going to go in order, which is probably healthy. So there's three terms. Let's just talk about these three words. So there's a lot of confusion here. Like we have samadhi as concentration, but we also have samatha as concentration. Right. Could you, is there a distinction yeah. between us? Let's talk about that a little bit, because I think that right. that's part of the confusion. It is part of the confusion. So, so samatha means calm, right? Is and and it's everything is just 
there's a lot of manifestations it can take if we want to discuss that. But everything it can be is calm just, and serenity, kind of is the way. Serenity, it's right? And that's what it means. And your mind has just come to, and it could anyway. So I'll, I'll come back to that. But samadhi actually is a different meaning. When you go and look at the meaning of the word, it actually means um, undistracted. Okay. So um, an undistracted mind is it has some calm and serenity in it for sure but um i it can take many forms so <clears throat> one way that an undistracted for mind can manifest and some of your listeners who are meditators will relate it doesn't manifest in just one way because we're all different right so one of the ways it can manifest is it can become everything's just this calm and stillness there's not much going on Right. And um, sometimes it can almost feel trance-like in a way. And I'm, I'm not putting a judgment, good or bad, on it, but that's right. a kind of calm. But you're not that aware of things happening. But there's a whole nother kind of undistractedness, uh, which, and, and again, I'm not putting a value of one sure. or another on there. Um, it depends on the system you're, you, you're, you're working in, where... You're, well, I'm going to use the term the mind, and I have to sure. be careful because I, I actually don't know what the mind is. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I want to just acknowledge that I'm being a little loose and slop. I'm using a term without trying to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to call it the mind. Sure. And I hope that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, where the mind comes to an unmoving presence, it's not distracted, it's not wandering off, it's very clear and present. But there can be other things really going on on top of that, right? That you are aware of from the place of a still undistracted mind, thoughts yeah. can come. And that can be, that's a, that's a samadhi. But it doesn't mean that you can't have other, you know, it's thoughts like there's and memories and plans and what's for right. lunch can all be happening. So and the other way that I've heard of it, right. I like non-distracted, but also another feature that is, is undisturbed and also collected or some of that's the other right. ways I've heard about it. You know, um, there's this quote that I love from Ajahn Chah. And if some of your listeners don't know, he was a great Thai monk, meditation master. And um, you can get access to his, if they do a web search, they can find his books. Sure. And and there's this famous quote called, as a matter of fact, one of his books was called Still Force Pool. And yeah. I'm going to, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he said, you know, make your mind like a still force pool. And this is a pretty close to the quote. He said, all kinds of rare and wonderful animals will come and drink at the pool. You will see many things come and go, but you will be still. That's right. And he goes on to say that, and and so I find for myself that that kind of samadhi, there you go, you have it right there. You're holding. <laughs> I it love up. it. I love that you use right. that quote. It's one of my favorites. Right. right. So to me, that's pointing to a stillness. But even if you're doing a kind of meditation called insight, that stillness and undistractedness, even if you take your samadhi very very far you actually don't lose connection with the insight side of things right. it enhances the insight side of things so that's kind of as we get in these difference on the on the samatha side that's going back to a particular interpretation which is saying no 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 we're doing a different kind of samadhi where we want to shut down where there's no thoughts 
no feelings. You don't feel your body. You've disconnected from all of that. Yeah. And you've gotten this sort of this pure mental world. And it's just a different model. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting, too, and I'm glad you used the word calm. A lot of people confuse samatha. A lot of people use the word, they usually, when people say samatha, they say one-pointedness, which is this other word, right. kagata. But that's not right. quite right. I think there's a lot of, and I, I blame a little bit the secular mindfulness world, because a lot of times they use these poly terms very incorrectly. But 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 like, so, 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 so real samatha is about a kind of calm abiding, more so than just one-pointed on a singular object. Well, so this is interesting because it gets, you're exactly right, exactly right when, when they're using um, poly terms. And then what happens is we make English translations. So the word eka in akagata, it means one. But here's different words that, that over the centuries, forever, translators have used these terms, I'm going to give you, and they have different connotations. Right. Akagata, one-pointedness unification of mind that uni that's a one yeah so there's unification of mind one pointedness or just two of of that's a different different feeling so some people i i suspect <clears throat> this is one of the questions did people have a certain understanding of the term ekagata and all of these terms and because of the understanding then they would practice in a way to aim in that direction in alignment with their understanding, or did they have certain experiences and then they interpreted the terms to match their experience? So you can have what's called one pointedness, where the idea is the mind becomes more, it's like a narrow focus, but the idea right. is you become less and less, you get into these experiences of samadhi, which we haven't talked about what those experiences are, but it, it's, it's a lot you then can um what can happen is is that you start you don't notice other things anymore you you become uh sort of I cut off. Call it, become cut off a bit that's right and so hardly anybody can ever do that and some people think oh that that's the deeper samadhi when you do that but it's not it's actually not deeper it's different it's different so that um you can how should i say you can um uh, you stop noticing your body anymore. You stop thoughts and everything. And you're like, if, if for you, Samadhi is seeing light and bliss, there's nothing but light and bliss. Right. Uh, you won't be complaining if that happens because it feels great. Sure. But um, that's kind of, I call it an exclusive Samadhi because it excludes everything else and you're exclusively on the one thing. You would call that one pointedness. Right. To separate from that, I use a separate, ter a different term from a which I call unification of mind is still the uni, the one. Sure. And in that, I don't call it exclusive. I call it inclusive, inclusive. samadhi because yeah. the mind is just as undistracted and deep, but you haven't shut off other parts of what would it be of your brain that allow other experiences to arise. Matter of fact, you're more absorbed into those experiences and can, you're not disconnected your enhanced connection. It's a different way. They're both, I'm yeah, not right. both fine. It's whatever people want. 
Well, th- I'm glad you bring this up, but I like the language that you're using, and I, and I like how obviously you've thought you've thought you've thought through this material probably exhaustively. But I do like this unification idea that I like the inclusive because I think that leans us more towards mindfulness. Is that the the mind is still the mind is unified, the mind is collected, but there's other events also going on within what we would call the mind that aren't pulling our attention. We're not bothered by them. There's not a lot of grasping. There's not a lot of aversion. There's more of that collectedness. And also, we do know the Buddha of the Pali Canon tends to reject, to some degree, this kind of exclusive concentration where you get so absorbed in the object, everything else disappears. From what I've gathered in his process, he mastered those and, and actually found out that this is not what I'm looking for. Well, that seems to be the case with um, when he studied, according to the text, it names just what you're saying, named several well-known teachers of the day. We don't really know. It doesn't. It, 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 there is some description in the text, and of course, who knows what really was going on? You know, what's preserved in these texts over the over the millennia. But um, this gets controversial because um, one of the things that we should bring, I would like to just bring in to the conversation, is the reason some of these different systems got pulled into Theravada. And that's the way I like to think. Let me, I'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. I like to think of coming out of, out of Buddhism that it's, it's not a right or wrong, but just people naturally, sincerely develop different systems. Uh, it's, but this is why it's not one way, according to their best understanding and what worked for them. So because of that, some people had different experiences with Samadhi, what we call insight and however you understand that mindfulness also the heart qualities have to come in here too right. and they and they all come in so there are ways to practice in which these are all part of one unified path that would be more of an exclusive and inclusive samadhi right and then there's people who naturally tend to you can't really separate them out you can't if you want to practice mindfulness you're going to get some steadiness of mind if you just want to practice steadiness of mind you're going to bring in insight of mindfulness you have to you can't really separate them but if you can separate how you consciously emphasize where you're putting your emphasis and so that's a different system um and so historically over time there were a lot of commentaries that were developed in different texts interpreting the original teachings in different ways yeah, let me let me ask you about that because that's a good point. Uh, within the Insight Theravada lineage, that we we've highlighted a little bit, kind of IMS Spirit Rock American Insight Mindfulness, right? Um, do you think there should be more knowledge between because people seem to associate well, there's the Vasudhi Mag and the Pali text, and you do a good job of distinction distinguishing the two of those and they're not in alignment in many ways actually i think right. this is where a lot of the controversy begins right. the vasudhi mag and the polytechs are very different things and, yes. and the theravada <laughs> tradition is more aligned with the vasudhi maga than they are the polytechs do you think that there could be more knowledge around this in the inside world because this is this seems like a big a big thing and well, not sure. a lot of people know this well y- yes and that was one of the reasons i tried to write the book and also and i'll one of the important things in writing that that book is that um since you're from since you've read it you know i'm not making a value judgment that on one versus the other i'm simply 
trying to separate these things out so we can, like I wanted to look at the polytext as if there wasn't a Vasudhi Mag and see what does it say on its own. Yeah. Then I wanted to look at the Vasudhi Mag as if there weren't polytexts and just see without interpreting through another filter, what does it say? Then we can compare them. And what we see is exactly what you're saying that they're actually two, what I'm about to say, some people would disagree. There are people who will say, oh no, if you want to understand the polytext, You've got to look through the lens of the Vasudhi Maga. Okay, that's fine. That's their system. Uh, um, if you actually look, though, they're very different systems. They just are. Totally. And so what we have to do is see there's these two, and there's a lot of variations within them, but roughly speaking, we can divide into these two groups or families of approaches or systems. And... Um, you can't judge one from the other. They just have their own goals, their own methods, and people seem to get benefit practicing in all of these different ways. So the only reason I, I, I mean, I do agree with you. It's the more, it, I think in anything, the more educated we are. The better. The, the, then we can make wise choices. The, the only problem is sometimes people get confused or there can be suffering also where people are having certain experiences. I can't tell you how many people Come, have come to me, uh, I, people know me because of my books and, you know, they identify me as a Samadhi guy, which I guess is fine if they want to, uh, uh, um, I don't quite put the label in exactly the same way. I, I consider myself a mindfulness, insight, concentration, and heart practices all synthesized into one path of practice guy. But I, don't I, would, I, would, I would feel the same way. I would be, an, I would very much agree with that myself. I don't know a shorthand to say that. So if they want to call me a Jhana guy, yeah. that's fine. Um, well, um, people have come to me where, where they would have certain experiences and other teachers were, didn't know how to deal with it or was, were sort of not, Val were sort of saying, no, 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 you can't practice this way. And it was going against their experience. And they just needed someone, I'm not the only person who can do this, but they needed person, people who would understand what's happening, validate it, and really see that the Samadhi piece, it's not like you're not doing this thing called insight now or whatever. So uh, people just would suffer. So the more people can understand, then they can make wiser choices. Uh, that's the only thing. But, you know, I think all of these systems are, I have a lot of, I'm not just saying this to sort of be politically whatever correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I genuinely respect all these paths. We're all different and what works for one person's not going to be the best class, you know, for someone else. Yeah. Back, you mentioned heart practices. So let's just talk about that for a moment because yeah. uh, the Brahma Viharas uh, are certainly rich within all the Buddhist systems, whether it's Zen or Vajrayana, <laughs> it, it, they're very much well respected and all of those they they kind of stand in there they don't stand so well in the list of teachings they're kind of this kind of a red herring to some degree uh and so the vasudhi maga categorizes the heart practices rami viharas as concentration practices which i always found to be a bit odd um and then so <laughs> where, where, where do you see uh the role of brahma vihara practices within the context of samadhi yeah yeah well, um, I think each person will find their own balance. I hope people will want to see the value of, we use these terms like metta, which is translated as loving kindness. Personally, I just like the word love. 
mm-hmm. it's it's more straight and direct sure. but see love kindness empathy these aren't the traditional sure. uh, compassion all those uh, as just obviously of importance and what they would want to cultivate in themselves some for some people those naturally come along with the samadhi you just open up into these beautiful places for other people it can it can not so much and then they may want to consciously do the work so i think each person will have to find for themselves how much to bring them in but i certainly would it for me i encourage people to at least reflect on it and spend some time hanging out with these heart practices so they can see for themselves the value uh um, you know it just feels good to have a to have our hearts more open rather than being more closed off yeah in, in in the light of that one of the systems that i teach and i may be one of the few people who teach it because stephen smith actually empowered me and encouraged me to teach it, it's what we call metta vipassana and metta vipassana was born out of kind of the burmese uh mahasi apu pandita for westerners because what they would find and i think you maybe mentioned a little bit about the suffering is a lot of times people can get into these what we would call deep insight states where they're they're really in touch with the three characteristics they see the the ever change the dukkha the not self stuff and it can be very um sort of scary you know so classic insight can really really throw people off if there's not enough of a kind of meta or heart base and I would use the word sure. heart base here to just yeah. kind of cool it down a little bit. Is that is that what right. you're pointing to when you say there's suffering that sometimes these these privileged kind of important states for some people can be quite scary? Oh, well, I wasn't. Ta- well, that's a that's an important topic. Let me just that's not what I meant. I think people can create suffering because there can be a mismatch between what they're we see. One of the problems we should come back to that in a moment about certain states can be uh, scary sure. and all that. But I, I, if we may, uh, I, could we just hang out for a, okay for a second yeah, here about yeah, this? Yeah. Because what I meant is, um, uh, there can be suffering because one of the things I hope it doesn't happen too much. But you know, people can get very attached to their own system or techniques or methods and say so guilty as charged, <laughs> right? And we have to be careful that we want to respect and honor methods, what do you call them, techniques, systems. But let's not get hung up on technique, right? right. Y'all, there are people who say, oh, you've got to do mindfulness of breathing. Well, you don't have to do mindfulness of breathing. There's a lot of good practices. Not only do you have to do mindfulness of breathing, but you have to pay attention to the breath in this very particular point in your body or else it's not going to work. Right. Absolutely not true. Somebody else, another great master is going to say, oh, no, you don't listen to that person. They're just completely wrong. You got to do. And then people who don't know, who are newer, suffer because they're like, oh my God, what's right? And am I do and and people eventually figure it out, I think. But that's what I meant by suffering when we get I told people are dogmatic and they don't realize this is when I work with people on retreats or in daily life. I actually come uh I don't have any any preconceived ideas of what practice they should be doing at all. I want to get to know them and I want to find what is your best doorway in. Based on your temperament and a lot of other things. You get to know them, you talk to them, maybe you start them out with mindfulness of breathing and you get to know, is it working? Is it not? What does work? And then you find maybe they're doing some of these meta practices and that's a better, which can be a very powerful concentration. There's actually a kind of jhana 
we haven't talked about that term here, but uh, deep states of samadhi. I don't know if it's an official term, but I call them metajana. No, it's official. That's a real thing, at least within the Burmese system. I've definitely heard that mentioned many times. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, so so I'm just saying that, you know, um, that's a whole path. So that's what I meant by that. I got you. Yeah. No, that's good. Let me just pause on that because I think that's important. Like that's, and and I run into that as a teacher. I think that there there is this, and, and teachers, I blame teachers for this, and I'm guilty of it too sometimes, is it's really easy to get attached to a system or a methodology. Say, well, if you want this outcome, you have to follow these stages. And that's not totally untrue, but there, but the idea that there's one proper correct way to do any of this, I think is a big problem in the meditation world. Yeah. But I would even go perhaps further than what you're saying. And so, you know, people, I'm going to say something here and if it maybe is a little too much, but you know, look, I say something, if it works for people, great. And if it doesn't, you just find what does work. So That's I'm going to go ahead. I want to preface cause I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah. I would actually go so far as to say, I, I'm kind of an outlier in this. I think we make too big of a deal about insight. Uh, and what I mean by it, so, okay, I was, I was trying to be a little provocative, but actually, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I what that. I mean is there's this idea in the insight world, and you mentioned earlier, people can see into what's called the three characteristics, right? Impermanence, suffering, and um, uh, what we call not self, which is a terrible translation, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, that's a whole nother discussion. Well, um, so that's the idea is when you really get that deeply about sort of the inconstancy of things, then the mind lets go and liberates. And that's fine. But there are many people who come to their liberation has nothing to do with insights at all. They actually go into a profound equanimity where the mind is non-reactive the sense of identification with things is really smoothed out and it's really a deeply liberated place. And it just came through the cultivation of some Samadhi. Now, maybe there were some insights that arose. No, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on this. So it's a different way for some people that the liberation is, is, and it's not through the insight path. So again, it's highly individual, What, how the awakening or, well, that's, I have to be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm conflating the terms awakening and liberation, which are not the same things, but uh, sure. have to be careful uh, how it arises for people. Yeah. Well, also, I think you're talking about more of a Nibonic kind of experience where there's that, there's that cool knot. It's not like they're necessarily mastered these techniques and they're having all these insights. They've just kind of come to this place of more peacefulness, more sense of equanimity. And, and how they got there sometimes is like, well, I don't know how sometimes these things just right. happen. I think really you can't separate these out. And so, of course, people, if you, as you know well, and I'm sure your students find out if they don't already know that however you begin practicing, if you just sit down or whatever posture you're in, you say sit down and you just close your eyes and you try to be with yourself, a lot of stuff's going to come up that you have to work with in addition to the concentration and the mindfulness. And so insights and learning and the psychological parts all get worked out. So I guess the insight part has to be in there. You're going to get the mindfulness part, the heart stuff. You're going to have to learn compassion for yourself and others. Uh, uh, the stabilizing and uh, uh, undistractedness of the mind will grow. They're actually all in there. So it's hard to say, 
was it one part of the other that really led to the liberation part? Yeah. It's I think it's hard to say. You can't say. It's uh -huh. all of the above. It is all of the above. I'm looking but at you can choose you can choose how you want to direct your emphasis, sure. I'm just you're, I want to follow up on that because I think you're really pointing to something that's super important. Um so yeah, so yeah, there is just, and I think I think a lot of it is an Americanization of like we really like techniques and we want to master techniques to achieve some sort of outcome, which is a lot of what these methodologies is. But one of the things yeah. that I find to be more of a focus on, I am, as in one level, people get into the Buddhist meditation system because they want to understand the ultimate nature of reality. On one hand, but I think it's really more about that's fine, but really. It's how we live our life, right? It's really the methodology that I think we're we're, we're looking for. Um, I and think all so that. too. Well, but that's a that's important, and so you know you can have I, you know I'm not sure exactly what you're pointing to, but I I agree that um, you know you can have a lot of things happen within the formal meditation context, and you can have amazing experiences and getting off and all kind of other realms of reality and a lot of stuff can happen. But if it doesn't carry through with just what we would call the ordinary, what, what's the point? And right. so um, actually people that I know that, that I work with who um, have been long time and really just amazing meditators over the years, invariably people come back to saying, you know what I'm really interested, I still meditate and still, but I'm real, my leading edge of my practice is just moving about in my daily life yeah, and finding right. areas moment to moment. Like, is my heart open or is it closed? When it's closed, it's some, when it's open, fine, just live. When it's closed, let go, open the heart. Am I caught in clinging and reactivity or am I in a place of equanimity? If I'm caught in clinging, let go. Right. And that's just such a powerful learning edge. I think for a lot of people, that may in some ways be more powerful than what happens actually in the formal meditation. I just, I want to be careful. It's hard to say. It's all important. It is. Well, let me ask you that then, because you've been doing, you've been at this for a while, both teaching, practicing, teaching retreats yeah, yeah. from a practice perspective. How important is it that people understand what these terms are conceptually or experientially? It's, you know, there's obviously some value, but in the grand scheme of it all, I mean, how, how, how important do you think some of this stuff is? You mean the the stuff like we write in books and we look in the texts and we want to understand the term? Yeah. You know, um, well, I've changed over the years. Um, I used to think it was a big deal and really important, but and so it's not for me to say for someone else. Each sure. person has to find their own way. But um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I think most people probably can benefit having some level of, you know, you don't have to like, be a scholar and dive into sure. all these texts and read all these commentarials or whatever, but probably having some level, it, it provides you some framework because sometimes you can get into experiences. And if you don't have a conceptual framework to hold it, it can get uh, disorienting and or confusing. And sometimes doing within, a, that's what I like about um, some of these systems, for example, in the Theravada, again, it's not one system, but you know, you hold some teachings about 
non-clinging or the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or whatever version works for you. And that gives you a structure. Uh, eventually, of course, it goes beyond all these systems and structures and lists. Yeah. But um, but um, I think most people will find some benefit if if they're drawn to do that. Would, yeah, would... I, I found from my experience, the, the, main, the main benefit of it for me, if it, and other people have reported this to me, students I've worked with for a long time, is it counteracts doubt in the sense of, I've, I understand, in some vague way, I understand this concept of samadhi. It kind of makes sense. I, I understand what Richard's saying here. But then I sit down, and then, and then when samadhi arises, or in a very, I can know experientially, oh. So it's not so much that I need to know what samadhi is, but maybe that I know when it is. So I can have a, an experiential frame of reference of like, when I'm in these kinds of qualities of mind, I'm aware, I'm mindful. Oh, I'm in the experience right now. And well, I think that helps people feel more confident about their practice when they can. Well, do I think that is true to kind of learn. So, you know, with the landscape of consciousness is, of course, vast. Yeah, and sure. the, the ways that experience can arise and manifest in all these states are, you know, it's a big, big world. And so um, you may not ever know everything, but as we get more comfortable moving in, in this, in, over the terrain, get to know the landscape, uh, then we know what's happening. You're right. Uh, we can be more balanced. We can meet it. Ultimately, to me, practice comes down to, it's conceptually simple, but this is the whole thing, that there's only whatever's happening in the moment. I mean, this sounds kind of uh, cliche, but I guess maybe it is a cliche. There's what's happening in the moment. And then what's most useful and skillful of, of how to be, how to work, what to do with it. And that comes through experience. Yeah. And But with more experience and with some more understanding, you could say education or understanding, we have more tools and we know when things are happening, oh, I know this, I understand what's happening. It's just obvious to me how to work, how to be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, you know, another way to... No, I, another way to say that, and I've heard this cliche, I think it's good, is that it's a classic, the mindfulness recognition. What is it that I can recognize that's happening in my experience right now? And then how can I relate to that in a way that is wholesome or skillful or useful. Right. And to some degree, that's almost a negotiation we have moment by moment. Well, maybe, I mean, that's, yes. Um, I would say sometimes we need exactly what you're saying when we need, it's, we need to find our way, sort of work our way through and find what's needed. But there's also, as you know, there's times when we don't need any of that. It's just flowing. It's clear what's happening. We don't have to think it's just, uh, we're just connected in a beautiful way, in harmonious way, and nothing's needed because the way is revealing itself. That's right. There's that abiding. You're just just rest in this quality of experience. There's no at that point the technique is sort of dropped. That's right. And so, um, right. And or 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 even if you were using a technique, it's just obvious what 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 to do, how to go with it. So you know, it's kind of both. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, both sides. So back to the latter part of the book. I like I said, I I 
I, I look at lots of Dharma books, way more Dharma books than I'd like to admit. And I don't usually read all of any books. Uh, yours I did. Um, I love the way that it's structured. It's like, I, I don't feel like I got too much of anything. And I love how you ended with the interviews. And I'm just curious, in doing, in doing the interviews and writing the books and doing the research, did anything surprise you uh, as a result of the interviews? Did anything change some of the ways or some of the thoughts you had about Samadhi as a result of talking to these other people? And, 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 if, I, and if so, what stands out? Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know if I would say something surprised me necessarily, but definitely the learning um, as I went through the interviews and I actually found myself, there was a few places I could mention where I kind of messed up in the interview. I let somebody sca skate by on something that I thought was wrong, but I was <laughs> learning. But, um, you know, the whole idea, which I was very pleased about, actually, was you, you wanted to bring in, I brought in four monastic and four lay teachers. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I also wanted to have a range of people who I know were coming from many, you get like a Powak and you get a Lee Brazington and you get all yeah. this different, to show the range of what, again, it's not a right or wrong, just the way people are working and understanding. So I was very pleased about that. Um, um, I guess it was interesting to me that I, I didn't really realize how many, how much some of the teachers had, some were very traditionalist in what you would call an interpretation of the Pali Suttas or of Vasudhi Maga, but how much some of these teachers just blended different parts in ways that one of the teachers, you know, he kind of was saying, no, no, the Vasudhi Maga is wrong. Oh, but this part of the Vasudhi Maga is good and had blended it in. And so... <laughs> How people really it's kind of a little can, bit of cherry picking going on with all this, I would imagine. But you really see how people get to find how to how do I I think a lot most people, I'm guessing, when they teach, they start what they've learned and but at some point it becomes they make it their own out of their own, this is what's worked for me, this is what's worked with my students, and, and it becomes very uh uh just their own it's not like they're making something up, but their own um, uh, own manifestation of how to teach. They've synthesized it in a way. There's actually a term, I forget it, a technical term in Pali, but the translation is to become independent of others in the teaching. Yeah. Which right. I think is what you're talking about. You're like, okay, I've, I've done a lot of this and I've done a lot of that, but here's how I deliver uh, mm -hmm. an understanding of this stuff based on my experience. Yeah. That's right. And of course, that's not an ego thing. Like, oh, no. I know and nobody can teach me anything, but it just comes from your own deeper... Mm. You know, we all want to get to a place of sort of a deeper, I'd say, knowing and inner knowing and an yeah. experience. You know, when we've been around something for a certain amount of time, um, hopefully we've learned <laughs> learned yeah. something. I noticed that too, and you just mentioned it. I noticed that there was, there was you had some monastic teachers and you had some sort of like insight teachers. Was there, did you notice anything, was there a monastic versus a lay dharma perspective baked into any of that? Um, well, I, I feel I'm having to kind of think back. I haven't reflected on these interviews in a while. Um, I, there's definitely a different flavor. I thought in general, with some of the, um, everybody was nice and had a good, you know, and nobody seemed like they had an attitude or anything. Or an agenda but, maybe. Well, some of the teachers, um, I think were a little more, uh, how should I say, um, strident or strict and this is how it is kind a of a little thing. more confident that their methodology was preferable as to others yeah but um yeah 
Um, and probably a little less of that in, with some of the um, lay teachers, I think. But I, I don't want to go too much because I, I felt very respectful of everyone there. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, it reads that way. It reads like a. The thing I like about it too is um, one of the things that the, the tone, the tone of the book that I appreciated, and you've, you've expressed it many times here today, is like, hey, man, it's all pretty good. You know, it's not a value judgment. It's not. It's almost just like, wow, look at the variations there are on this one idea and how do we, how do we respect the multiplicity of these experiences without trying to get into value judgments over one's better than the other? No, I appreciate that. You saying that, that makes me happy because that was very much the intent. Definitely. Um, And it's not, and the the thing is, hopefully when people hear that, it doesn't make them more confused. Like what are you saying? There's no right or wrong or there's Mm no, no, that's not it. It's saying that, there's, there's, it's not just one way. Right. And um, that's the, that was the point. And so the thing is, you can sort of trust yourself and follow what you're drawn to. And look, everyone will see, is it working for you or not? And then eventually you kind of say, oh, I'm going to stick with this or wait a minute, who's this other teacher? That's kind of interesting. Let me try that out. And we learn over time, uh, you know, all the different variations. And then we come to know from within ourselves. Then again, we become more, you know, independent or whatever, you know. Yeah, about, that's right. Because, because we can trust ourselves. Yeah, the, that's the other, another thing about the book I like is, is that you definitely point to the samadhi. This is like a really important thing in the Buddhist meditation system. And there's lots of different ways. There's lots of different approaches. There's lots of different. Uh, so I, I really like that, um, right. that, that, that overall assessment of, of the word. Um, yeah. What was my next question here? This is, um, I feel like we could go on and on and on. Yeah, uh, this is very, I think, an, an important distinction. I want to not leave uh, this out because my general, it seemed like samadhi kind of got talked about in two ways over the years. There's like, there's samadhi as kind of a meditative state that one can achieve that's kind of important. But then there's like samadhi, sama samadhi as a path factor of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and those always seem like kind of different things. And I know you highlight that a little bit, but how do you... Well, what do you think about all that? You know, there's this samadhi meditative state, but then there's also this eight path factor of, of samadhi. Well, I tend not to separate those out. And so perhaps, okay. uh, you know, maybe you have a different way of holding them. But to me, I'm not happy uh, with how I hold them, which is one of the reasons I asked the well, question. But, I mean, I'm just giving you my own take on it. So for me, when we talk about, again, samadhi as undistracted, and by the way, in the eightfold path, um, it's very, very clear. It's explicit that they're talking about the the, the right samadhi, the, the final, the eighth of the element of the eightfold path is jhana. And I've always found it confusing then that, um, well, how, how do these insight people who sort of under or dismissive of jhana, I don't know, it's fine to do that as a path. I don't know how they reconcile that if they're working in a system of the Pali uh, Eightfold Path in Theravada, but um, it's it is jhana, so it's talking about jhana as a practice, as but all, as something to do to cultivate, and then actually the, the experiences, the states of jhana. So it's it's, it's talking about something very specific. Uh, we have to be a little careful because even though the Eightfold Path does say that the right concentration is jhana. 
I don't know that that's that, I don't know if, 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 if the traditionalists would agree with this, but for me, I don't know if that's a useful way to think about it because we don't want to think that, oh, I don't have jhana, so I don't have right samadhi. Well, that, that's so, the problem that I find is that, like, I'm not a jhana, I mean, I also have a, a history of drug addiction and I've been in recovery for a long time. And, and I, and I, and there's a lot of thing I've seen the kind of uh, Olympic kind of competitive med meditator right. thing where people get up, they get a little bit jhana obsessed. Right. And, and that can be kind of, that can become yes. a very destructive thing. That's people can right. spend years doing that. Well, that's right. So I'll, I would, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's a super important point. Just a couple of things, if I may, about that one, the way I under, I hold right samadhi and eightfold path is, and this is just me, I would say any samadhi you have, any amount of undistractedness, even if it's just a little bit, is right samadhi because it's just where you are at now. Yeah. As long as it's held within right view, you know, right understanding, right intention, right actions, all the other elements are informing it, it's all, all right samadhi. But I would actually go even a little further because I have changed over the years um, since I wrote the book. So I've always, uh, this is maybe true confessions here. So I've always been, since the early days, I was a Samadhi and Jhana guy from way back when I first started. It's been more than 50 years ago. Yeah. And even when people were like inside and not, it's like I followed my own. When I go into interviews with a teacher, I'd tell them what, what they needed. It's not that they couldn't help me. They would I give understand. me good, good advice, but um, it was clear what was happening. And, I, you know, they were on a need to know basis only. So I, <laughs> I would tell them, you know, so I didn't catch hell from them. And then I was I was a John guy from way back. So you so must be friendly with Lee Brasington then because he's sort of the John master, at least well, in my mind. Well, okay, you, that's fine. You call him a John master. You know, he and I go way back. And, I suspect uh, you do. <laughs> Based on what you just said. He's one of the teachers interviewed in my book. Totally, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, actually, when I've taught a s series of classes that I've done on Samadhi and John and Theravada Buddhism, I've done these whole, you know, over a series of months, I would invite different teachers to come in and give their perspective. He's come and taught. So, you know, I haven't seen him for a long time, but he and I, you know, he's a friend and I respect him a lot. So um, I'm saying that because I've always felt that Samadhi was a big, big deal, right? Not that you have to have anything, but anybody who anybody whose mind has settled at all sees the power of it. That's all. Totally. Yeah. However, now over the years, I've changed my kind of feeling about it. I still haven't changed anything. I think Samadhi and John are are powerful for sure, and um, a ton of benefits. But actually. Over the years, I've come to see that the liberation doesn't happen because of some dramatic experience that we have. It's, I really view it, more, maybe that happens for some people, but I view it really, this is so important, more as a long-term ripening that happens to us all. And if you could sit down and meditate and you never developed any, everybody meditates, no matter how distracted your mind is, you will have some degree of settling so this yeah. isn't exactly accurate yeah, you can't imagine, keep the samadhi away even if you wanted to even if it's a little bit but imagine you never got much samadhi at all in your life yeah. but you just sat to be present with yourself that fire of just being with yourself would marinate you would cook you and you would get cooled out and it would and and it gets you to this great place of equanimity it's not a samadhi path 
if you've got samadhi, that stream of samadhi carries through and becomes alive and it will cook you and marinate you. All these different flavors. So even though I've always thought samadhi is a huge big deal, people identify me as a jhana teacher and I do, our retreats are in all that. Uh, actually, I think samadhi, I would say it's a big deal and it's a, also of no importance whatsoever. That's I would say both of those are true at the same time. I love it. Yeah, I love it because I've always had concentration. I also too, this is a whole clinical side of things. Is I also have had very severe symptoms of PTSD and right. people with, with PTSD around the focused attention concentration can kind of be really, really problematic. So sometimes a different right. methodology uh, oh, yeah. is important. Um, so the other way to, um, you know, this, this path factor, I, I've heard it. There's also lots of academic perspectives on this stuff that in many ways they say that, uh, Bhikkhu Sajjati uses the word immersion or sometimes integrated that other people will say that right samadhi is actually the integration of the previous seven factors into becoming the whole person and trying to, uh, even Daniel Goleman's book he wrote with Richard Davidson, which I were like altered traits is that we're not trying to, not, we're not, it's not about state chasing, like trying to chase these meditative states, but for the benefit of long-term trait changes, behavioral changes, becoming more kind, more generous, more loving, uh, as an outflow into the yeah. world. But I think that's right. And of course it's about, tra you know, this is a cliche where they kind of be cute. They say it's about traits, not states, because it's kind of a little- Well, they're simple. connected though, aren't they? Well, and actually this is something I've been reflecting on um, uh, for, for the last maybe 10 years, because for a long time in my, I, 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 I'll say a little bit about my own practice. I don't, you know, uh, I'm not making any great claims what I'm about to say. I think many people experience. By the way, I consider myself to be of average natural abilities around meditation, <laughs> but I've just been doing it for like 53 years and I put a lot, you know, I still meditate a lot to this day. Yeah. Uh, and um, I don't know what would happen if I stopped meditating. I, I haven't done the experiment. Yet. Um, but what you find, what I found for a long time is it got to a point where what I call the state, if you will, of samadhi was alive and caring, sort of like when people go on retreats, whatever level, forget jhana, they drop down into some kind of state that kind of carry through through the day when you're on retreat, even when you're not trying to do anything. Most right. people who on retreats could relate to that. Especially so longer like, ones when you get to the 10 plus day period, yeah, yeah. you almost get this operation. You almost get this like default mode where you're like, you just, you, you retreat mind. You're, you're generally you're aware. You're, you're kind of flowing a little bit more. And you're just in it, right? You're in it. Yeah. So that became more and more just alive carrying. I'm not claiming I never space out or can never yeah, get sure. so I'm not making any grand claims, but um, sorry, just a moment. <laughs> Did we hang up a little bit here? No, Hold we're on. Good. I know you're recording this, but um, um, I think my Zoom might have hung just for a moment. Did you hear me okay there? Yeah, yeah, everything came uh, through good. I, okay, I think I hung for a moment. Let me say, so what I found for myself, and again, other people find this too, it's not any great claim. The samadhi was just alive and carrying through all the time in my daily life. Actually, I got to a point where being on retreat or in daily life, no difference at all, none. So I just thought, well, I don't know why, why go on retreat. I mean, that happened after it took me like 40 years to get there. You're like, I can do this at my house. Well, but right. So that was like, I thought, okay, this is what it is. That state, that stream of samadhi is alive, carrying through. 
And I thought it became more of a trait. It was right. a state, but it became more of a trait. But then over the years, it actually even shifted beyond that. I can't actually tell anymore um, because something else can happen that's not related to, it's not samadhi where, where the practice can, it's hard. We become emptied out, which is not a samadhi state, but we also become filled up with something more deeper. And, and, and it becomes more of your state of being uh, that carries through. And it's hard to describe what do you mean by being emptied out, mm -hmm. but that's not samadhi. It's, it's, and being filled with something more, I don't want to use the word transcendent because that sounds a little. Sure, weird. I know what you mean. Carries through. And, you know, how do people get to a place like that if that's where they're aiming, which may or may not be? Um, did they do it through samadhi? Do the Zen people, the Soto Zen who are de-emphasizing samadhi, but just go directly to sitting and being and letting go, mm. does that get them emptied out? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be some state at all to give you more the trait. Yeah, also there's just like the, the wisdom of old age, right? Sometimes it's like, I notice too, I'm almost 50 now. It's like, like sometimes I'm like, am I, is, it, is my practice ripening or am I just kind of getting wiser because I got more years and more bad choices under my belt? Too? Yeah, it's probably both, right? right it's a combination yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I don't get too emptied out just because uh, my mind's going <laughs> from old yeah, age. No, no, I hear you. <laughs> I, but I, I think also too, there's, there's an there's a, uh, analogy the Buddha makes in the early canon that I like is that, the long-term goal is is making a shift from being preoccupied with the place, but being more in touch with the ground or Tana foundation. And sometimes, I, and I've noticed that for me, I've just, I feel more present with my life. I feel like more like I'm living from the ground of now or presence rather than being distracted and caught up in all yeah. the places I got to get to and when I got to get there. And that, that, that seems like a nice barometer for assessment of like, yeah. okay, like I'm, I'm less preoccupied with my place in the world. Uh, and more contacted to the ground because you know the place burns you you get the degree you get you get the thing that you think is going to solve all the things and it doesn't do the job that it promised yeah. that sounds beautiful i'm so happy just listening to you talking like that uh i find very inspiring so thank you yeah. for sharing that yeah so last question we have a little bit of time sure. i gotta bring my boy to the allergist here so okay. uh yeah, yeah. secular living what is your general takeaway from writing the book is there anything that you like look back and go oh, that you wish you had changed or what is your general overall takeaway or like what, what would you like to leave people here with and you've yeah. done a great job of it already but like what is right. your samadhi giveaway takeaway well there are two different things i'm, I'm going to give my takeaway right. but uh and i won't get into the details if you don't want to but you say anything i would have changed yeah there's a few a couple, two regrets i have in the book but it's so it's not nobody would notice so it's okay that yeah. uh, um I, I was just part of my lack of confidence in myself back then oh, you but, want to see what they are sure let me see one of them was um in the interview with um um bonte gunaratna he talked about something called supramundane jhanas oh yeah i saw that actually yesterday and i was like oh boy and he was a guy saying the vasudhi maga got the Pali suttas wrong he kind of says that in there, which I don't say it's wrong. It just went in a new direction. I wouldn't call yeah. it wrong. It just came a different system, but he's saying that. But then I, he said something, I said, always oh, that super mundane jhana. And he goes, yes, I, that's total Vasudhimaga stuff. There's no super mundane jhanas 
uh, in no, the suit. In fact, there's no – in the poly suit, there's, 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 I learned this from Stephen Batchelor, this whole relative and ultimate truth thing that right. happens in Buddhism, that's nowhere to be found anywhere in the poly discourses. That, right. that originates in the Theravada Abhidharma, and then it gets taken to – that's right. They really take the ball and run with it later on. And the Sudi Magadha. And I, I don't like that whole rel- relative ultimate breaking down the truth systems. Right. So I would personally, I, I'm going to, you know, um, I've been around a long time, so I feel okay to say super mundane John is just goofy. Right. And I'll, I don't care what anybody says <laughs> about that. The second thing is when in the book, if people read, the, the, you know, there's a second half, which is the interviews, but in the first half, which is the part I wrote, the very last part of it, there's a conclusions chapter where I, I com- do some comparing, which is really kind of where it all comes together. Yeah. Uh, and at, at the, um, at the, I put a table in there to kind of summarize the difference between the, uh, um, the Maga and the, Suttas. I don't have the book in front of me right now, but in my table, there's a place where I'm talking about whether there's like awareness of the body in like in the Vasudhi Maga, they don't want you to have the body. And in this, in, and I wanted to be a little soft and not uh, irritate people. So I said something about the suttas. I said, well, it seems to indicate uh, that it's a little different than the Vasudhi Maga. And when I look at it later, I said, no, not seems to indicate. They're just different systems. Totally indicate. <laughs> I, I kind of wimped out a little there. That's all right. I, I appreciate your honesty. Uh, my main takeaway that I hope for people is, is that um, um, we can learn. We do our best. It's hard sometimes to trust ourselves and to really be, you know, sometimes it's hard to, um, what should I say? Uh you know, we can't, we, it's hard sometimes to distinguish um, our delusion from what we think is our wisdom, right? Oh boy, yeah, tell me about it. We can't see our own blind spots, but I think if we cannot be afraid to try and take the chance to trust ourselves and listen, and even if we get it wrong, it's okay, we'll get the feedback, we don't have to beat ourselves up, we can learn, and there's something very important about honoring our own truths, and as long as it's coming from our most sincere place, then, um, uh, acting on that and then be willing if it's not perfect. It's okay, you made a mistake and you learn and you move forward, but it's all about learning to get in touch with our, I like to call it inner teacher. Yeah, no, I never So that, that's what I hope people would want. Yeah. Alright, well, it's good to see you. I'm going yeah. to uh, okay. say goodbye and I hope you get to see you. I really appreciate you. No, it's great to connect with you, and I have, I'm glad you're out there doing what you're doing. Awesome.